Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. One of the most popular features we do each month on the Beeson Podcast is to play a lecture from our archives. Well, today it's a kind of lecture talk given by our friend, Dr. James M. Houston. Dr. Houston is the founding principal of Regent College in Vancouver. He's a native of Scotland. Uh, he did advanced work at the University of Oxford, earning a DPhil. He was a geographer for many years, a friend of C.S. Lewis. And as he will say a little bit in this talk, his path, his journey of faith led him into some other directions, to a new profession, to a new country, to a new life, really, uh, here in North America. But uh, his ministry has reached far beyond uh, his base in Vancouver, and he's had a very special relationship with Beeson Divinity School. Over the years, he's been with us on numerous occasions, sometimes spending upwards of an entire semester. It's almost correct to say that Dr. Houston is a mentor to our entire school because he gave us a philosophy of education that we have tried to pursue faithfully in the work we are doing here. One of the things he emphasizes, you'll pick this up in his talk, is the importance of the personal. He means by that we're not just individuals, sort of automatons, units of individuality, but we are persons made in the image of the one triune God of holiness and love. And we are called to act out that kind of life, that communion we have with God, also with one another in community. And that's an emphasis that will come through as you listen to him, as he reflects to our faculty and staff. At the beginning of our academic year, a couple of years ago, we invited him to do this, Dr. James M. Houston. Let me just mention he's a, he's a writer of so many books on spiritual formation, spiritual theology, a shaper, a pioneer in that field among evangelical believers and theologians. His most recent book, written with Michael W. Parker, who is an associate professor in the School of Social Work and the Center for Mental Health at the University of Alabama. It's a book about Alzheimer's, and he refers to that in this uh, lecture that he gave to our faculty and staff. Let's listen now to our wonderful friend, Dr. James M. Houston. It's a great privilege to be with you. My first introduction uh, was actually not to Beeson, it was to Sanford. I was invited by the president to come as a kind of consultant uh, on a very interesting assignment, and that was, how can we make Sanford University a more Christian environment? Well, it was a difficult uh, phase because there were some liberals from some of the seminaries that had been smoked out there, and they were finding their residence and uh, Christian colleges, including Sanford itself, so it was a delicate task. And then it led from that to having this wonderful friendship uh, with your dear Dean and, uh, and the opportunity of coming uh, from time to time. Um, before I left Oxford, I was the, the bursar of the college, which meant I was the number two after the head of the college, and I was responsible for, of course, um, the uh, organizational, financial, administrative management of the college. And so one lived between downstairs and upstairs. And so you had to keep the servants happy downstairs and you had to feed well the uh, dons upstairs. 
And I used to enjoy some of these uh, upstairs, downstairs uh, British uh, comedies, uh, which of course are quite hilarious because what they poke at is that human nature is the same regardless of status. And uh, so one understands fully that um, when you bring staff and faculty together, uh, we have to realize that our commonality is not only that we're serving the institution, as we should be doing in our different roles, but at the same time, uh, we're most aware of sometimes the rawness or the woundedness of our human nature that has to be dealt with as well. So this is a wonderful uh, privilege to be with you on an occasion like this when you're all brought together and especially when some of you are now being welcomed as uh, newcomers to the community. Uh, what I want to share with you is uh, what I see as a disenchantment of the baby boomer generation. And I think what that disenchantment of the baby boomer generation is the failure of success. And what I mean by the failure of success <coughs> is um, that we can have such a reductionistic uh, perspective on things that truly, as the scripture says, uh, we can uh, gain the whole world and lose our own soul. And of course it takes many different forms. It can mean that we've become very wealthy but we've destroyed all our family. Or it means that we can be so absorbed in our academic studies that uh, we neglect our spouse, or it can mean uh, many other things, because the very category of success is that it's reductionistic. Uh, but we're not uh, functionaries, we're relational beings, and because we're relational beings, we therefore have a different category uh, to assess what has been the uh, end of our life, as I've come now to the end of my life, and that is what counts is faithfulness. Because in faithfulness, you never come to an end of the obligations that you have as a relational being. To say I'm a person is to say forgive me because I have never been able to fulfill the relational expectations of other people. And uh, there's no better way for a Christian than to activate guilt in his colleague by saying, how's your prayer life? And what that means is, of course, that there's no end to the infinitude of what it is to be a Christian, you see. Well, that's the nature of being relational. You're never successful. It's a false category. You have to be faithful, and indeed faithful unto the end, when you see... Uh, those around you that you love, that you have to take them and walk through with them through the valley of the shadow. So in the light of that, what I want to suggest is that we've never had a more professionalized society than we've had since the war. This, uh, uh, it was Peter Drucker who once said that uh, the Second World War was unique as a war in the history of mankind because it was a war that harnessed science and technology into an industrialized war such as was unprecedented in any other war. Uh, the first war was horrific enough but 
The second war was even worse. And consequently, um, what has happened since the war has been that that momentum of industrialization has then ramified into all the professionalization of our society since then. So never was there so many job descriptions and professionalizing that has taken place. Now, one of the things that affects us all as human beings is that um, if your identity, even as a Christian, is in your profession, then you become a depleted self. You may even be an empty self. And a depleted self is always in danger of narcissism. So one of the elements that we're facing today in our culture is that being depleted in our selfhood, we're all in danger of being narcissistic. Narcissism is an index of a lack of relatedness. And that index of a lack of relatedness is what is becoming a pandemic, not just an epidemic, it's a pandemic in our culture today. And the people who are most prone to be narcissists are thinkers. Because I remember we had a professor of philosophy who um, lived just next door to us. He was a very eminent philosopher in Oxford. But my uh, youngest daughter, Penny, at five years old, used to trip across and they didn't have any children, so they loved Penny's visits. And she said one day, Mr. Robinson, what do you do for a living? Well, Penny, I think. Yes. And I write about thinking. Yes. And I teach about thinking. And then he stopped. She said, is that all you do? <laughs> she had it right. And so what we realize is that we're hoaxed when we think our profession gives us our identity. And most of all, we're indicted as Christians when our identity should be in Christ. Well, I want, this is a bit of a mouthful to say all this at the beginning. So I want to unpack that and take you on my journey so that uh, in a few minutes I can briefly summarize how I came to these conclusions. I was trained as a geographer, and it's very amusing actually because my dear friend uh, Bruce Walkie and I have just finished writing a book on, uh, on the Psalms, a uh, commentary on the Psalms uh, together, and of course that seems rather strange. And so he introduced the fact that he brought me in as a geologist uh, to write this book with him. I said, Bruce, if you introduce me as a geologist, as your co-writer, people will think you're stark raving mad um, to, to have me collaborating with you about this. Oh, he said, I always thought you were a geologist. And I said, no, I, I was a geographer. Well, he said, what's the difference? <laughs> I said, well, one's about rocks <laughs> and the other's about chaps because uh, I was a historical geographer and I was really more in the history of ideas and it was through the history of ideas I got into spirituality and the, the various uh, traditions of prayer and the different uh, ways in people made commentaries in the past and that's how I got into it so there was the validity for that kind of continuum 
of progression of change in one's own professional life. But also because I was always discontent with my professional status. That's basically why. And one of the things that uh, you learn at the end of life is that there are two ways of being intelligent. One way of being intelligent is, um, you might say, uh, a crystalline form of intelligence. Well, to be crystalline in your intelligence may mean that you're a very sharp logician or a very sharp uh, mathematician or you're a very specialized uh, individual as a scholar. But it's, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not flexible. It's not expansive. It's enclosed. And so that's probably one of the reasons why if you look at the, uh, the retirement of professionals, the people who in a sense peak in their professional intelligence most quickly are the mathematicians. They're often the youngest professors, uh, members of the Royal Society or other august bodies, but they peak very quickly because they're crystalline thinkers. Uh, but the people who maintain their uh, maturity in professional life are much more the humanists because they're much more related to the human condition and they're very much more flexible and broad-ranging and sometimes much more uh, synthesis and analysts in their way of thinking. Anyway, um, the flexibility that I've always felt has arisen from discontentment with being a professional. During the war, <coughs> I was recruited by the RAF, as I thought, for air, uh, air photographic intelligence and goodness me, for some unknown reason of bureaucracy, I was drafted into regional planning and planning for the brave new world after the war. So I spent my first two years in a new profession of um, replanning the west of Scotland. Well, it was so surreal that I was glad to get out of it because it was also bogus as I saw it for uh, the future of one's life. And so I've always looked through things as a consequence of that, and there have been many other incidences of that that's happened since then. You know, it's a terrible tragedy if to, you have to, um, in a sense, support your self-importance by supporting the legitimacy of your profession. And there are a lot of people uh, who do their PhDs and everything else afterwards just simply supporting their own professionalism and defending it uh, as a thing that is to be legitimately uh, defended. If it's truth, you don't need to defend it. If, uh, if it has its own validity, then you don't need to worry about it. Uh, and so that's one thing that uh, has been important for me. Well, arising out of all this, um, Bertram Russell had in 1929 written an essay uh, called Why I'm Not a Christian. He was uh, always consistently an atheist in his philosophical thinking. And the philosophy department at City University in New York had appointed him about 1953, I think it was, uh, to be the distinguished professor of philosophy there. 
the board was still sufficiently Christian in its founding and in its stewardship to be outraged and to force his resignation, or rather, not to validate his appointment. She was very angry, and the result was that he inflated his original essay, which had created his, uh, his losing the job, and he wrote a whole book of essays called Why I'm Not a Christian. And a friend of mine, who was then professor of classics at Auckland University, he, uh, he decided that we Christians should respond. And so <clears throat> he was um, uh, writing a book edited with 12 different professions, Christians and different professions, to write why I am still a Christian. So he asked me as a token geographer, and you know, we had the chemist and the engineer and the philosopher and so on. All the token positions were being accepted for the essays. I said, I don't want to be odd man out, you know, Ted, but I can't write that. That I'm, you know, in spite of being a geographer, I'm a Christian. <laughs> or in spite of being a physicist, I'm a Christian, and so on. Well, he said, what do you want to write? I said, well, I want to write that um, I'm still a Christian because I'm pursuing being a person. Oh, he said, well, that's a different approach, isn't it? So, yes. And as I look back over my life, if you were to say, what is your greatest pursuit in life in the use of your mind as well as in the use of all the uh, uh, desires as well as your abilities that you may have, what has been that golden thread of Ariadne in the labyrinth? How have you escaped out of the labyrinth? How does your life make sense? So you look back upon it and you say there's a consistent thread through all of it. I would say it's that thread of pursuing the personal. Now, that's tenuous because you don't say when people ask you, well, what do you do? Well, I'm pursuing the pursuit of being personal. <laughs> that won't work in our, in our contemporary culture. But basically, as a Christian, that is what works. That's what you're doing. And of course, it's all because it's grounded in the reality that God has created us in his image and likeness and being created in that, in that awesome, wonderful way, he has called us to be persons in Christ. So I remember very vividly when I was still in my late 20s, having grown up in a devout Christian home, almost like another conversion experience. I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. And that's not my faith in the Son of God. That's in the merits of the Son's relationship with his Father by which I live. And so in the reality of that, I have sought, and still by God's grace, I'm still pursuing the need to be a person in Christ. Well, you know, it gives you a tremendous freedom. Because... Uh, at the same time, it, uh, it means that 
when people may adulate you for something that you may have done, you're quite unconscious about that. You say, really? Did I do that? Is this something that you've seen? Well, praise the Lord. It's his doing. Because you see, to be in Christ is not to be idolatrous, but to be iconic. That's to say that you're not worshipping something that, in a sense, is going to shape you to be idolatrous yourself in your own intrinsic being. So if you worship money, you will become metallic. If you worship sex, you will become sensual. But when you recognize that it's all of Christ and not of self, then I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me in my life. And so it has made it possible for me then to discard one professional role for another professional role, but always to take those professional roles with responsibility because the ethics of the profession and the responsibility of the profession and the facilities of the profession are not things that you, you scorn and discard. They're all necessary for us and we all need to live appropriately with them. But uh, when I wrote this uh, book, which my son asked me, he said, Dad, before you die, would you share with me what are the basic convictions by which you've lived? Well, my son knows me that when I, I'm asked to give a cup of cold water, I usually put on the fire hydrant. And of course, he, he laughs about that. So here is uh, Christopher asking me, will I write down the basic convictions? And of course, I have to write a book about it. But uh, that just happens to be the kind of person I am uh, that always finds the riches that we have in Christ. Now, you may, people will not find this an easy read because um, it's aphoristic. And it's aphoristic because one is writing from Inscape as there is landscape, so there's Inscape. And as the poet describes Inscape is that whole inner world that Augustine speaks about in the Confessions. He says, you know, people climb mountains and they explore the sea and uh, become intrepid explorers and all sorts of things, but how foolish they are when they don't ex explore the interiority of their life. And so when we explore the interiority of our life in Christ, we discover what riches there are that you can't logically outline it all. You can only do it aphoristically as a poet does. You give an insight here, an intuition there, a conviction there. And uh, lacing all these things together may appear to be somewhat fragmentary to other people. You take the book of Proverbs and what wonderful gems you have in each of those verses, you see. Or you take our Lord's teaching in parables and you get this inscape of what is expected of you. You're challenged by uh, the story that he's telling. So that's the, that's the approach. The other thing I find that's very important for us to grow in this kind of flexibility is recognizing that um, it's never on one level. It's never an expression of an ism. An ism is saying, this is all there is, ism, you see. And we've been, we've been uh, 
destroyed almost in the 20th century by the isms of the 20th century, the ideologies of the 20th century. But what the Christian life is, it's so multifaceted that uh, there's no way you can put it. How in the world can you put a globe on a flat piece of paper? Well, projections attempt to do that, but they all are inadequate. And the problem with theology is you can't, like uh, a globe, put theology into a, a systematic theology. Um, my own approach to spiritual theology has been as much a, a, a sort of duel with my dear friend Jim Becker as it's been anything else. Dear Jim, if you stay too long at Regent, you'll never write your systematic theology. <laughs> And I'm afraid that's happened. He's, uh, he's now hoping at the end of his life he'll write his confessional theology. But uh, as I once uh, teasingly said in a lecture at Trinity in front of Carl Henry, how systematic do we need to become to become systematic theologians? In other words, it's too flat. It's not multiple. And if you look at the great success of the enormous appeal that C.S. Lewis has had in our culture today, it's simply because he put out all the stops of the organ, he, of the church organ. It's like saying that you need all the genre, you see. Uh, just as we sing in our hymn, join all the names of wisdom, love, and power, all are too small to express the Saviour's worth. Well, the same is true of communicating uh, in theology, that uh, we have to use every genre there is by which to communicate it. So living in that multidimensional kind of world in which we can rejoice in the way that the Lord has dealt with these things, um, one realizes that you're always, therefore, uh, going to encounter in dialogue. Uh, my wife has often said, you know, don't listen to a word that Jim is talking about. It's a lot of nonsense. This is what I think. And so we have a great debate. <laughs> but I've, I've loved that, you see. Because dialogue indicates how much more multifaceted reality really is, you see. So the most uh, engaging way that you as colleagues can have with each other is to be vigorously debating all the time with each other. But you're doing it in love as you seek to express the truth. You're not doing it destructively or critically of each other. So, yes, uh, uh, living in dialogue, constantly in debate, uh, gives us wider horizons. And uh, so that has been a great privilege too of my life. Well, I want to close by saying that there have been, of course, very formative people like John McMurray, who became a philosopher of the personal. And one of the great dicta that we all need to keep in mind, which he, as an early mentor, gave to me as when he became professor in Edinburgh, and in his uh, Gifford lectures he, he, he expounds upon, he says two things. He says, uh, knowledge is meaningless, is ultimately meaningless, if it's not put into action. And secondly, and actions are meaningless 
if they don't foster friendship. Well, you say, wow. And so if you read his two volumes, which are the self as agent, the role of being a self is not to be self-contained. The role of a self is to go out to the other, is in a sense to do what we might call othering, <laughs> always living in the light of the other. And when you do that, then the other becomes so important that his second volume is uh, persons in relationship. A person is intrinsically a theological category that, of course, John Zizoulis and other uh, Renaissance uh, writers of theology like James Torrance and his brother Tom and uh, now Alan, his son, uh, have uh, focused so much attention upon in our culture. So um, their writings uh, have been very formative. And my friendship with the Torrances has been a long friendship since we were students together that uh, has explored that area. So there are times when you do unconventional things in the classroom. One of the things we did some years ago when James was still alive was to say, well, let's have a course on experiencing the Trinity. Well, how do you teach experiencing the Trinity? Well, the only way you can do it is to have three people lecture it. <laughs> and you're dialoguing with each other, you see. So uh, James Torrance and myself and uh, one of my younger colleagues, one of my alumni, a doctor called Edwin Huey, uh, we did the course together to express from three different angles uh, the, the mystery of the interworkings of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, in our experience of life, you see. So you can do very innovative things because that's the nature of the subject. And one of the things that T.F. Torrance really profoundly moved me to move in this direction was that he used to say, as a really strong conviction that he had, the innate logic of an object studied determines how it should be studied. Well, you unpack that mouthful, what it means is that you study matter mechanically uh, and you may study uh, people uh, sociologically, but ultimately when you are studying the person, you're relating personally. And so uh, how much more is it appropriate for us when we talk about studying God or knowing God, that we recognize that to be known of God is the premise with which we know him. And from that position, we then move forward to relate to him broadly and, and uh, than we do. Well, the time is gone, but uh, let me just soberly say what happened to me this uh, weekend when I came down to Tuscaloosa I was invited for the first time in my life, it was just a new adventure, to lecture to the Alzheimer's Association of America on is there a theology of Alzheimer's? And of course this was Mission Impossible, as many other things have been impossible in the past. But you know the thing that came out of it that I had to communicate with them was, the tragedy is that many of us as evangelical Christians who because of our enlightenment heritage from which in the 18th century our evangelical faith was birthed, 
are still too rationalistic about our faith, still too doctrinaire about our faith. And the thing that happens with dementia is that it's a disease that destroys the cognitive faculty first. And so the complaint of dear Christian leaders who have been a wonderful influence for other Christians when they are in this situation and they complain that they've lost their mind, tragically they're also saying they've lost their faith. What does that mean to us? It means that if we let the Word of God dwell in us richly, if we let that Word of God really sink into our souls, and we don't have a professional identity, but an identity in Christ, then it means whatever may be the end state of our life, and we're judged at the end by what happened at the beginning, then we can realize that God can so wonderfully still provide us with the awareness that his love is still there. And that the end language of, lo of life is love, as it was at the beginning. So these are some reflections. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.